Well, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Caleb, Josh, thank you so much. Uh, I know when Caleb asked us to, to share today, he gave me the, the title for Josh, and he was like, whom is conforming to whom? You know, and in my heart, I was like, I think the church is. So I passed the test when he mentioned us, you know, this aspect of the church that is conforming to the world, okay? So he, was, he already opened us with a prayer. I'll just kind of uh, move on to what I have today. It's the same message uh, I have is why biblical worldview matters, why biblical worldview matters. And in my conversation with you today, it's not more like a preaching, but a conversation. Um, I'm going to build a case, a case study to see some of the things that happened in the Bible that are actually happening right now and why that happened and the reason why we need to learn from what happened in the Bible and try as much as we can through the power of the Holy Spirit to prevent them from happening today, especially in, uh, in our churches today. So uh, what I heard was, you know, when we talk about biblical worldview, basically you're looking at using the Bible as a lens on how to see the world how to see God, uh, his nature, his character, and his role, how to see creation, what is, made, uh, what is made or created and sustained by God, how to see humanity, who and what humans are, how to see moral order, so the truth, moral behavior, and responsibility, uh, and, how, and what's the purpose, the intentions, and the meaning of existence. So, and then, but also it is important, through the Bible, you can see the patterns the shrewdness, the counterfeit, the works of how the devil deceives man, and therefore we're able to walk in the light of God. Uh, 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 Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. So it's important for us to have the knowledge of God and to walk right with him. So the case study that I have is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, verse 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2. verse 12 to 17. We are all familiar with the seven churches that Jesus spoke to. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, we have the church at, in Pergamum. This is what the Bible says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So there you go. If you, if you don't like your name in this app, in heaven you're going to have a new name 
And only you will know, only you and Jesus will know. So he, let me explain the situation in Pergamum, okay? Uh, Pergamum was located in Ephesus, and uh, north of Ephesus and Simna. It's, uh, it's in current Turkey, okay? Uh, in this city, the Roman governor of Asia, he used to patrol, or he used to walk with a sword. And whenever he did that, it was a symbolism to say that he has the power to judge. And obviously, if somebody does not follow his proceedings, he'll destroy them. And so, sometimes uh, you see in many nations when a, uh, a new president has been inaugurated, they are given, you know, you swear by the Bible, depending on what nationality that is. But at least in Kenya, our president was given a sword. And that sword, obviously, is a sword of leadership, is a sword of authority. So it is interesting to me that you see Jesus says that uh, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword that he comes to counter what that Roman uh, governor was doing at that time, okay? So there's a connection why he actually had to come and say, I am the one who holds a sharp-edged, uh, a sharp, sharp double-edged sword. Obviously, in Hebrews 4, 12, he talks about the, the, the word of God. And therefore, when you look in this city, he says that I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. What does that mean? Does it mean Satan actually lived there? But in my study, I found out that there were five temples in Pergamum. The first temple was the temple of Athena, okay? Uh, she was the goddess of wisdom and warfare. Uh, she was considered more civilized and more modern. Uh, she wore a crown as a symbolism of wisdom, and she had a shield and a spear for warfare. So if you Google, you'll see her pictures. And this is where you get the name Athens in Greece, okay? That's the first temple. The second temple, the temple was called Aclepius. He was a god of medicine. The sign was a serpent intertwined on a staff, okay, which is still the medical symbol of today. So when you look at an ambulance that's driving, you see the, 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 the serpent on the staff, okay? That comes from there. And then the, last, the, the, the third temple, the temple of Dionysus, this is a god of wine, orgy, fertility, all kinds of immorality. And then the fourth one is the temple of Zeus. If you know anything about Zeus, he was the ruler of heaven and the father of all gods. He was considered king of gods, and he was the one whom they considered to send thunder, lightning, rains, and winds. And then the fifth temple was the temple of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. He was worshipped at that time. And many other gods at that time. So many forms of idolatry to the extent that Jesus says, Satan has his throne there. But interesting enough that in this area where there's so much idolatry, he puts a church and establishes a church in that area. And so, when he speaks to them, he says, he says here, let me just read it. He says, uh, uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, okay, because of the, the happenings outside, that the things outside were at that time were not, conform, were not changing the happenings inside the church. And then he says, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put uh, to death in your city where Satan lives. So Antipas was a bishop in Pergamum. He was, uh, he was selected uh, by, by the apostle John. Now, Antipas, he was killed during the time of Nero. And the way they killed him is they burned him. They took him and they burned him in, a, in, a, in an altar that was created to look like a bull. That is how they burned him. 
So the intention of the enemy at that time was that if we can kill the head of this church, it will send shockwaves to the rest of Pergamum and everybody will be afraid to say that Jesus is Lord. However, it did not work. Fear did not work. In fact, when there's no persecution, there has, you have to think there's a problem somewhere because Jesus said in this world, you will go through so much, but rejoice for I have overcome the world. So as a believer, if you're not going through persecution, you have to check your salvation. So at this time, when there was persecution, they still continue to grow. And then he says something that is a little bit different. He says in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. You see very clearly that this city was positioned, this church was positioned in a very wicked city. And because of the wickedness that was happening outside there, it started to enter the church. And as it started entering the church, it even entered the pulpit to the extent to which that he's saying there are those who have the doctrine of Balaam. That they are teaching uh, 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 not sound doctrine. But what is the doctrine of Balaam? You have to understand what Jesus is talking about here. What is the doctrine of Balaam? In fact, when you look in the Bible about Balaam, it began as a council of Balaam, and then it went to be the way of Balaam, then it became an era of Balaam, then it became a doctrine of Balaam. Okay? The name Balaam, in Hebrew, it means destroyer of people. Balaam was a prophet of Baal. If you do your research, Balaam was a prophet of Baal. And these prophets of Baal, they used divination, okay, via Sutsain. So they were able to predict the future through divination. And the first time you find out about Balaam is in the book of Numbers 22, 23, 24. That's the first time you find out about Balaam. Let me give you a summary. The Israelites had left Egypt and they were conquering so many nations. And then there was a king, his name was Balak. When he heard about the Israelites, he, he said, I have seen a horde of people and I cannot defeat them. Therefore, I'm going to send delegations to a false prophet to come and put a curse on the nation of Israel. So he sends a delegation to come and speak to Balaam and put a curse to the nation of Israel. This is what the Bible says in, in Numbers, uh, if, if you have your Bible, come to Numbers 22, verse 1 to 6. Numbers 22, verse 1 to 6. We're just defining what Jesus meant about those who are holding the teachings of, of, of the doctrine of, of Balaam. Numbers 22, verse 1, it says, Then the Israelites traveled to the, Mo uh, the plains of Moab, but camped along the Jordan, across Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw, that all, saw, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. They were, Israel was, there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of Israel, Israelites. The Moabites said to elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethel, 
near the Euphrates River in, in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have set, settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever, bless, if whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. And then verse 7 when I talk about divination, he says here, The elders of Moab and the Midianite, Midian, Midian left, taking with them the fear of divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. So he sent a delegation to, to Balaam to put a curse on the nation of Israel. Okay? And, 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 and we, we, you have to understand there's a difference between divination and prophecy between somebody who practices divination and a prophet. The person who does divination and the person who does prophecy, a person who practices divination can predict the future which the devil himself creates. They can even tell you your name and the name of your brother and your sister. Because the devil is, a, is an amazing imitator of the works of God. If prophecy belongs to God, then divination belongs to the devil. Prophecy and divination are the closest relative on how the devil can bring counterfeit. And so over here, you see that Balaam wants to put a curse on the nation of Israel. In fact, today, if you want to know something in the forms of divination, you see them in astrology, crystal gazing, palm reading, horoscopy, wiggy boards, enchanted cards. So many people fall into the trap of these things. You go over there, they tell you some truth, but it's not the truth that comes from heaven. The Bible says the Lord does not do anything or, or does not act unless he speaks to the prophets, his servants. But this man was not a prophet. Okay? Another classical example about divination or soothsayers you see is in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 18. There was this slave girl that was speaking about Paul. And he said, listen to this man. They are the ones teaching you the way to salvation. They are preaching about Jesus Christ. But then after some time, Paul came and rebuked the spirit as living inside that person, that slave woman. So the lady was speaking true, but the spirit of truth was not in her. There's a difference. So that is how divination works. They can speak the true, they can speak true, but the spirit of truth is not inside of her. So Balaam had the capability or the capacity to put a curse on these people. And so therefore, he goes there and tries seven times to send messages to, to, to curse the nation of Israel. But it does not work. In fact, God says, these people are blessed. You need to, these people are blessed. You cannot put a curse on them. And then eventually, something happens, okay? In, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 6. This is the counsel of Balaam, okay? Then we go to the, to the way of Balaam, the heir of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam back to Revelation. In, in, uh, in, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 9, it says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked, okay? Again, they conformed themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of 
of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord. So the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from them. So Moses said to Israel, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then, then an Israelite man brought in the camp a median down there. If you read about, uh, uh, I'll just read it, uh, a median woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole Israel, assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. While Phinehas son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand and, sh and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right to the Israelite's man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against Israel was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So through divination, Balaam was able to, to discern, to see, and say, you see, if you go hand-to-hand -hand combat against the nation of Israel, you will not overcome them. But he says the only way that you'll bring death to them, the only way to defeat them, it has to deal with their relationship with their God. So he counseled Balak and told him, do this, send women, Midianite women, to go and entice the men. And it worked. So he went, he sent those women, and he enticed the men. And they slept with them. But on top of that, they ate food offered to idols, and they worshipped idols. That is what Jesus is talking about in Pergamon. They worshipped idols. And because our God is a jealous God, he cannot stand idolatry. So he put 24,000 of them to death. That was the counsel of Balaam. He gave him an advice. This is the only way you can defeat these people. That's the same counsel that you see in so many churches. That if they are wrong with their God, you can now slaughter everybody in the church. If they sin, you can slaughter them now. Because we know their God is a jealous God. If they conform to the patterns of the world, now they don't walk right with their God, you can slaughter them. Okay? So they began to mix the worship of God and idols. They compromised. They left the way of God. They forgot about biblical worldviews and the requirements of God. And then from the counsel of Balaam, it went to the way of Balaam. Okay? In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 16. I'm, I'm halfway through. I'll try to get it done as, as quickly as I can. 2 Peter... Chapter 2, verse 13 to 16. This is what the Bible says. Verse 13, it says, It talks, my, 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 the title for my Bible says, False teachers and their destruction. Verse 13, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left their straight way and have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. So what is the way of Balaam? The way of Balaam is the way of profit. From the Bible. 
He loved the wages of wickedness. In fact, if you read in Numbers, he, he was promised to be given so much. Could it be true that there's a connection between this and the gospel of prosperity? That if you come to Jesus Christ, now you ride in big cars. There'll be no more sickness. You'll live a very good lifestyle. That is the way of Balaam. To forsake your heavenly kingdom and to build your own earthly kingdom that is temporal. That is the way of Balaam. And you see that a lot in so many churches. It is called prosperity gospel. And then after that, you have the era of Balaam. What is the era of Balaam? In Jude chapter 11, Jude 11 doesn't have a chapter. Jude 11 to 12. It's the last book before Revelation. Jude 11 to 12, it says, Woe to them, again, this is about false teachers and godly people. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's liberium. These people are, are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. So he's saying the era of Balaam is also connected to profit. And he's saying that the people that teach these things, they are like clouds without rain. We know the importance of clouds. Clouds are supposed to come and bring rain. Rain from heaven. It is a blessing. But yet, when the ground is so hard, and you cannot even plow, these clouds come and they give false hope. You can say today it's supposed to rain, but they come and they go. That ground that is so hard is the heart or the soul of man. Longing to know the ways of God. Longing for the things of God. But then you have the false shepherds who come and they present sort of a message of God, but not really. So they have become clouds without rain. They don't provide any hope. So they come and they live with making your soul still thirsty. That is what Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. He said, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst. In fact, out of your belly, rivers of living water will come out. So the people that practice the era of Balaam are compared to those who are preachers or false teachers that are like clouds that do not provide any rain. And then finally, you have the doctrine of Balaam. So now, it was a council. It became a way of how to do things for profit. It became an era, and now it was stamped into a teaching. So Pergamum was also experiencing the doctrine of Balaam. You see, when the church loses biblical worldview, she stops to feed from the word of God, she feeds from the world. And with time, her sound doctrine of sin, holiness, righteousness, the blood, the cross, family values, start to change. They become watered down. Because now the world has begun to infiltrate into the church. 
And therefore, they come up at the church, some churches, they start something called liberal theology. Liberal theology basically says, do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. If you want to live this lifestyle, that's your choice. Nobody should judge you. If you want to do this and that, that's your choice. But when you as a preacher, when you as a believer of the word of God, you stand and you say, sin is sin, you get a response of why are you judging? What used to be sin and abomination is now tolerated, has been accepted, in fact, is now being celebrated. In the future, it will be put to law. Let me ask you something. If you don't see this happening today, you're living in a different world. Why, why is it that some churches have already begun to put LGBTQ flags at the door? And yet, in Matthew 19.5 says, Jesus says, have, have you not read? A man and a woman, they will leave their home and become united one. But the defense is that Jesus ne never said anything about homosexuality. He addressed it right there. Matthew 19, 5 to 6. He spoke about it. So why would the church now counter what Jesus spoke about? And yet he's the one that died at the cross. He purchased for God members of every tribe and people. For God. He's the one that says, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. But when he left, he left his ambassadors, we as believers, to take care of his church. So if he left you and I to be the caretakers of his church, why would we entertain things that go contrary to the owner of the church? Why would you say LGBT homosexuality is not a sin? It is a sin. Why would you not say abortion is not a sin? It is a sin. Have you not read in Jeremiah 19.5-6 that it has never entered the mind of God to do such a thing? It is in the Bible. Have you not read about Psalm 139, 13-14? That you knit me perfectly in my mother's womb. That is a sanctity of life. Life begins in the womb. The gospel of Jesus does not compromise. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, what did God say? He said, and I will put enmity between you and the serpent. Between the woman and the serpent. Not only that, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the woman was Jesus Christ because he said he, he will strike your heel but you'll crush his head. And any person that is a follower of Jesus Christ is an offspring of him. But interesting enough that the devil also has his own offspring. 
people who act on, act on behalf of the devil, beginning with Cain and all rebellion, the time of Noah. Those are the offsprings of the devil. So he said, there has to be a separation between the children of God and the children of the devil. But tell me something. Why then is there some churches are now making a peace treaty with the devil? And yet he said, I will put an enmity. The word of God does not go forth and return void. If he said that, why do we have the biblical worldview being thrown out? And now everything from outside is coming in. There is a church, I will not be afraid to say, there is a church in Tulsa. You go and watch the Easter service. It was like Oscar, Oscar Awards. Just Google. It is happening right next door. And so soon you see pagan practices in churches. That was an example of it. And there is more. If you read in Ezekiel 8, 1 to 18, we, we can just write it, read it later. You find out that the Spirit of God comes and takes Ezekiel from Babylon to Jerusalem. And when he's in Jerusalem, God shows him abominable things. He shows him how the, 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 the elders were worshipping the moon. How they were worshipping the God of Jealous. And he was telling him, these things are an abomination to me. And he was saying that I will leave this place. I do not belong to the place of wickedness. It is a warning to the present day church that hold on to the sound doctrine. Do not let the patterns of the world and the things of the world to influence the church. But there's good news. Jesus said at that time many will fall away. At the time of his coming many will fall away from the ways of truth. So we are living in the end time. So there's rejoicing. There's light on the horizon. That he is coming too. He's coming soon. But then he said when I come will I find faith he asked the church, will I find faith? How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if the word of God is not being preached at the pulpit, how do you expect the people or the congregation to have faith in him? If you don't teach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how will he come and find faith? So it's an awakening, an awareness for us as a congregation, as a church, family, to, to keep an eye, to be watchful before his great coming. Amen.